Welcome to the Tech Enthusiast Hour podcast, where several hosts talk about the week's technology news. The show notes for this episode are at tehpodcast.com slash teh18. We've got four hosts this week. I'm Randy Cassingham, founder of thisistrue.com, the oldest entertainment newsletter on the internet, weekly since 1994, and the online, offline, viral, getoutofhellfree.com. Leo. I'm Leo Notenboom, lover of coffee, corgis, and computers. Not always in that order, of course. And I'm the Leo behind AskLeo.com. Gary. I'm Gary Rosenzweig, the host and producer of MacMost.com, where I post new Mac, iPhone, and iPad tutorials pretty much every day. And I also make mobile games. You can find those at CleverMedia.com. I'm Kevin Savitz. I am uh, one of the hosts of Antic, the Atari 8-Bit podcast, where I have interviewed uh, more than 300 people who did interesting things with early microcomputers. And, uh, and guys, guess what? I, what? I just learned today that I am operating at peak performance capacity, or capability. Peak performance capability. That's what does that mean? Did your iPhone tell you that? Yes, my iPhone told me that. <laughs> exactly. uh, I just upgraded to the, the new uh, iPhone firmware which fixes some bugs and and uh does various things but the people the thing that people seem most excited about is the the new battery health feature uh which will tell you uh, how your phone's battery is doing and if it's slowing your your phone to compensate for an old battery now i have a iphone 6s which is certainly not the latest and greatest model um two years old now and uh, it says my phone is performing at peak performance capability. It's currently op- uh, supporting normal peak performance. And uh, it is at 90% of the maximum out-of-the-box brand new ca- uh, cap- capacity. So, well, Does that mean your battery is 10% degraded or what? I, yes, basically. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But after I, I have this, I've had this phone for two or three years now. So that's pretty good for... Yeah, success. I yeah. we just retired the oldest success in, in our line, our family line of iPhones, with me at the top, and then you know, my wife and my daughter the next. So the success just got retired, and now it's the um, a seven, a seven plus, and and my iPhone ten. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, we had similar numbers with the with the seven and the success to yours. My ten said a hundred percent. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, I guess my other bit of news, I, I had a, a family trip to London, just got back from that. And uh, this recording, this podcast right now is, is the only thing staving off the jet lag and, you know, keeping me awake. Um, <laughs> so thank you for that. Um, it's putting the, putting the listeners to sleep, but it's keeping me awake. <laughs> <laughs> um, when we were in London, we did a bunch of museums and went to a bunch of theater and things and went to the uh, Science Museum in, in London which uh, we went on Good Friday, and it was, it was a holiday there, so all the kids had off school, and it was not the, a good day to go to a museum oriented towards children. It was very, very crowded, and we didn't stay for, for very long. Uh, but in the, the tech sphere, we did get to look at an uh, interesting exhibit down in the basement about the technology of of home uh, technology of the home like home appliances uh toasters uh the first vacuum cleaner which the thing was just like as size of a 
Volkswagen Beetle. <laughs> it, was, it was huge. Um, so that was kind of neat. I got to see that. Uh, that was my, my tech. And it, some of the museum I noticed really was needed to be updated because it said that the, uh, the, the space shuttle was the only uh, spacecraft that was, could be, uh, go out into space and then be, come back and be reused over and over again. And I thought that was, that was obsolete on a couple of different levels because yeah. well, we're not using the space shuttle anymore. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so that's about me. What about you guys? Well, uh, thinking in terms of the enthusiast part of things, I was enthusiastic to see Ready Player One, um, you know, the big movie extravaganza that had all sorts of cool high-tech stuff in it um, because I love the book. It's been my favorite book of the last 10, maybe 20 years. Easy. I'm going to go see it this week, so no spoilers, please. I'm not going to spoil it. But I'm just going to tell you I, I didn't like it. But I'm not going to tell anything about the story. Um, the uh, they left out some of the best like tech enthusiast stuff in the book. So this is stuff that's not in the movie, and it's actually stuff that's in the very beginning of the book. Like for instance, uh, you know you, you know from the trailer that it takes place a lot of it. People go into a VR world. You know the internet is kind of like a VR world in this future. Kind of like the Matrix. <laughs> yeah, kinda. You know, but you instead of you're not plugging in biologically, you're actually putting visors on and haptic gloves and things like that. Um, and in the book, there's a lot of positive stuff about that. Like, for instance, he's a high school student, and he goes to high school in the Oasis. And this is important because he's dirt poor um, and lives, like, in a horrible, horrible situation. But yet he goes to just a normal high school with everybody else in the Oasis. And it's like education provided for every child for free in the Oasis by real teachers and, you know, and teaching virtually in this virtual world. And there's all sorts of good stuff in the VR world of the Oasis in the book. Uh, you know, people connecting with each other, people having work and jobs and, you know, not having to leave home for their tech job because they just work using, you know, in the VR environment and all that. And, uh, and that's not in that's left out uh, along with many other things <laughs> is left out of the movie. Um, and I, I felt like, you know, reading the book, you get a very positive feeling of the future, of at least the technology part of the future. And that's left out of the movie. So I was disappointed in that. It's, uh, I really strongly suggest anybody read the book, uh, go see the movie if you want, or skip the movie, but definitely read the book. Hmm. That's, that's like an amazing book. I, I enjoyed the book fine. Yeah. I, Everybody loves this book. All the geeks and nerds and, and uh, that I, I know love this book. And I feel like, what do they miss? You know, it's fine. So I feel like obligated to see the movie and I'm probably going to go see it this week. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure it'll be fine in a Spielberg-y sort of way. Um, I'm going to make my wife go and I'm sure she won't enjoy it at all. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, But, oh, I have, you have a, a just uh, t- tangential. Your thing talking about movies reminded me. I just signed up for this thing called uh, Movie Pass, which is, I guess, the the hot new thing, um, where you basically get a card. It's a it's a credit card that gets you into the movies. You pay. They say it's it's nine ninety five a month, but really they charge you annually. So it's really whatever what one hundred and twenty dollars uh, for a year. And you get this card, and it works in four thousand theaters around the United States, and you can get into one movie a day 
at no extra charge. So you could go to 30 movies in a month. You could, yeah, or 365 in a year. And then they specify it's uh, uh, 2D movies only, and mm-hmm. that's it. So uh, I put I'm, a link I'm to that in the show notes. Assuming that these are those situations where the, where the listing always says no passes, so they, you would be accepted from being able to use it for those? I don't know. That's a good question. I, I um, don't think so. I, I think because I heard that the movie, co- the movie theater companies actually don't like this, and they don't, a lot of them don't approve of it, but the way that the MoviePass gets around it is that credit card thing. It acts just like a credit card. So whether or not the theater supports it, the charge will go through to them on Visa or MasterCard or whatever it is. Um, so oh, interesting. I, I think it's just the 3D thing. It's just because those are more expensive. Yeah. So they're, you know. And this thing has the MasterCard logo on it. Yeah. I, I think it, it just works through the MasterCard system. And they're, they're gambling that people won't use it as much, you know, won't try to go to 365 movies. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, I think there's some see, people who would. Yeah. Yeah. If I live closer to a theater, or, you know, that sort of thing, I absolutely would. But I figured to use it once a month, it'll absolutely, even if I use it, six times a year, it'll still, you know, pay for itself. I, when I signed up just a few days ago, uh, it was six ninety five a month times 12 because it's actually annually. So I got a better deal. It seems like that deal is over. Now it's $10 a month. But uh, anyway, I thought I'd go to shot. And if you're a person who likes movies, it might, I'm, I'm just going to use the heck out of it until this company goes out of business because I really don't <laughs> understand how this is sustainable. I, I think they're selling the data. Maybe that's my, mm understanding i mean so they know what movies you're going to see and that somehow is being monetized so there's so there's that yeah yeah could be all right and they could just also be biding their time and hoping that the theater companies come around and we'll give them discounts and you know goodies and sure all of that maybe some companies will come in and give promotional deals too you know they they want to boost the movies uh you know um you know, uh, opening weekend or something, they'll maybe give a special screening for movie pass. There's all sorts of ways they can monetize. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see yeah, yeah. how it changes. So Gary, I've got a, a question about uh, ready player one again. Uh, yeah. If we can go back to that for a second. Um, I have not seen it, nor have I read the book. Um, yeah. So I apparently am, am not living up to my geek cred. Um, I have a friend who saw it, actually a friend of a friend who said, Quote, without having seen it, he says, it looks like a headache-inducing CGI mess. Hmm. What's your take on it? Did it look okay? Well, first, I saw it in 2D, as I see all movies, uh-huh. because the I hate how unclear 3D is. I liked the crisp, clear you know, look of a 2D movie. Mm-hmm. And I hate how the edges... Especially are- digital. It's, it's gotten much better in the recent years yeah i hate the fuzzy edges the lack of sharpness and contrast in in 3d um so yeah so i saw it in 2d uh it didn't didn't bother me at all and i sat pretty pretty up close and center like i always do i really i like to sit up close especially for movies like this i want i want to fill my the field of vision right uh, with the screen so yeah that wasn't uh wasn't a big deal. You know, it's a Spielberg movie. So there's dialogue. People talk to each other and there's, you know, <laughs> things like that. It's not like one of these like Michael Bay type movies where, 
that doesn't necessarily need to happen. Just what? No, no explosions. Up. Yeah, something <laughs> to blow up every thirty seconds. No, you know. So being a being a movie with actual like characters, dialogue, and directing, I don't think it has as much of a opportunity to make you. Uh, well, good. Good, Kevin. I'll be interested in hearing your feedback on, on what what you think of it when you see it. I I probably won't go to a theater to see that one. It's I'll just wait for it to come out and watch it on the big screen here at home. But still, I'm kind of curious. I'll read the book, and and the audio book is read by Will Wheaton, who's one of the best in the business for audio. Because of idea. course, because of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, right. speaking of theaters, yeah. Last week I popped over to Denver and saw Hamilton. And the tech tie-in to that is I pretty much thought, and let's see uh, if any of you have seen it and concur, I thought the lighting was basically another character. It was really expertly done. Mm. It was perfect timing. Um, you know, it highlighted the right thing so you knew where to move your attention because it, it's a very fast-paced, busy play. But the lighting helped you stay up with it and, and see who was talking and, and where to direct your attention. And there was even a special effect that they did toward the end, which, which boggled me until I realized what they had done. Hmm. And I thought it was really terrific. The lighting is great. My favorite lighting moment is in the, there's a flashback scene when she thinks back to the, the moment where she introduces her sister right. to Hamilton and just between the sound and, and the lighting is just, that's for me the the, the amazing moment. My, my daughter, um, who's into theater, she told me once that um, if you see a play, and either you want to sound smart, or there's nothing good to say about the play, about the acting or or the the book, uh, you can always compliment the lighting design, and that <laughs> makes, <laughs> makes you sound like you know what you're talking about. <laughs> well, in this case, the lighting design really was fantastic. Mm-hmm. But the play was too. I'm not. I'm not dissing the play at sure, all. I thought sure. it was really interesting. And you know, I read the biography a couple of years ago that this is based on, and found it mostly pretty interesting. It kind of bogs down toward the end, but um, I thought it was really interesting. And and you saw it in uh, London, Kevin. Yeah, I saw it uh, in London just a few days ago, and I had seen it before uh, in. On, on Broadway with the original Broadway cast. So um, yeah, I've seen it a few times and I'm going to see it again this weekend because they're the touring productions coming to Portland. So um, probably the, the crew that was at, at Denver. Probably. Yeah. So the first thought that came to mind when you mentioned that you saw it in London, of course, is do the Brits do it from the British perspective where <laughs> we are all traitors to the cause? No, um, it, I mean, it's exactly the same play. It's still done with American accents. Um, some of the, I mean, it's, it's, it's still an American, it's, you know, the subtitle is an American musical. It's told from the, the American perspective. Some of the, the, the jokes and comments uh, that are interesting and important to uh, a U.S. audience completely fly over the heads of the British people. And mm-hmm. some of the things uh, seem to tickle the, the, the British people in a way that uh, American audiences didn't, uh, you know, care about i mean uh, there's a, was one uh, near the end where uh, uh king george says uh, 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 uh there's going to be a new president and it's just like you're, you're giving up presidency you're i, I you're not going to be leader anymore i, I you can do aware, that I, yeah he says i wasn't aware that was a thing you could do and the audience just love that <laughs> so um 
Yeah, great show though. Really well, great. my week has been kind of, I don't know, boring in comparison to you guys running around and seeing shows and doing the world travel thing. I mentioned last week that I was in the process of getting my paper, uh, paper version of one of my books out. That got released. Um, I was pretty, actually really happy to see that. It's like, I think it was Gary that was kind of unimpressed, but I still like having a piece of paper in my hand that represents my work. Nice. What's the, what's the topic? Uh, this is backing up in Windows 10. Nice. Uh, one of the more important topics for, for the Ask Leo audience. And other than that, I mean, I've spent a lot of time uh, playing around with website work, not my own. Um, as I'm sure you each have, we have clients that aren't really clients. Uh, they're in the sense that they're people we do work for, but they don't really pay us. And uh, one of those is, in fact, the breeder of our dogs. And uh, she was in desperate, desperate need of a website that actually worked uh, through a, a, a series of unfortunate events, so to speak. Uh, she ended up with, with a really, really bad website. So I actually moved, ended up moving her to, uh, to WordPress and getting that all signed up and set up last week. And we're very, very pleased with the results. Uh, one of the reasons that... Uh, it was so important for her, and I think it's increasingly important for everybody who has a website. Um, as it turns out, at the same time, I went ahead and put uh, some analytics on there so I can see where people are coming from and what kind of technology they use. And yes, over half of her traffic was or is from telephones. And the previous website was not in any way, shape, or form mobile-friendly. So... Lesson learned there for anybody who's got their own website. Uh, the phones are out there. This is something that the four of us have been dealing with for some time, but it's one of those little pieces of information that I think uh, really does end up impacting uh, more people than uh, may realize. Good point. So with that, um, so another week, another breach, um, or, or maybe two. we should we should just add a, a, a recurring segment to this podcast, Breach of the Week. Um, except that, like, we, a, like a, said, we need a bumper. Breach of the Week! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, just, we'll just clip that out of the audio for this podcast and use it every time. Um, the first one was last week, uh, my fitness pal announced that they had discovered and covered a breach that impacted uh, all of the registered users on their site. Something like 80 million, I think. Yeah, there's a lot. It's, it's a very, very popular app. Basically, it's a, a calorie counting app and website. I mean, there's a lot more to it than that, but uh, I've noticed, for example, that's what they optimize for in their search engine optimization. They look for calorie counter app. Um, and it's, it, it turns out, I happen to use MyFitnessPal. I've used it for several years. It's one of the one of the tools that my wife uh, uses it too. Yep, so it led me to some significant weight loss a few years ago. Anyway, um, the the reason I mention it uh, is not necessarily to wag fingers at them. I mean, breaches unfortunately happen, and yes, they shouldn't, but they do. In their case, they did something right. Uh, when they announced the breach on their page, and of course, we'll have a link to that announcement, they actually said exactly what the breach contained, what pieces of information, and the fact that, no, it didn't contain your password. It contained your what's called a hashed 
password. It's basically a, a mix-up of your password that can't be reverse-engineered into your password. They actually specified the tool that they used for that, the actual algorithm that was being used. Hmm. The reason that's important is because there are a bunch of algorithms out there, and some of them are essentially about as good as not using an algorithm at all. They're about as good as just storing passwords in plain text. The, uh, the algorithm that they use, it's a function uh, called bcrypt that is actually designed for exactly this kind of thing. And uh, they, uh, they just said, this is what it contains. This is what it has. This is the, the algorithm we used. And as a, obviously as a, as a techie user, I looked at that and I said, great, I really don't have a lot to worry about here. Now, the problem, of course, is that not everybody's going to pay attention to that. Not everybody's going to know that, you know, Bcrypt is way better than MD5 or any of those kinds of things. But it is an interesting piece of information to look for. And if you get an opportunity to see, uh, you know, the, the information that's exposed uh, by various breaches, that is uh, something to look for and potentially research to understand just how seriously you should take that particular breach. But and still, this, you should pa- change your password. Which and I make did. sure you don't use that password on other sites, especially financial information. Which uh, I don't know what my password was. I didn't look at LastPass. LastPass is where I keep it all. But I did notice that my old password was eight characters long which is not long enough. And it leads me to believe I was in fact using one of my less secure passwords that I do reuse uh, in various places. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was, that was me being bad. But now uh, my, uh, my fitness pal account has a, a 20 character random password that I couldn't tell you if you, if you insisted uh, without looking at LastPass. Now, Randy mentioned that, that there was a second breach. There's in fact one that I just found out about like an hour ago preparing for the podcast. Um, if and the funny thing about this is my fitness pal did it right. And it sounds like this other one didn't. Well, what's re- <laughs> first of all, the other one is Panera bread. If you've placed an online order for food from Panera bread, chances are uh, the information you gave to them uh, might have been breached, might've been leaked. Now I don't have all of the details. This was actually uh, released by or uh, published by Krebs on Security, a very highly rated security blogger, um, just this evening, and in fact uh, has been updated like within the last four hours, I think. Uh, you know, Panera Bread is well. So there's a bunch of information that's been released. It's unclear exactly which pieces of information, but it could be some really interesting stuff like your Panera Bread customer account number, which apparently uh, hackers could use to like drain your Panera Bread account or your, your frequent eater points or whatever they call yeah, them. Whatever they call them. Find so, out whether you prefer sourdough or, or, or rye. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Anyway. That's a rye comment. So the, <laughs> yeah. so well, the only reason, you? the only reason, time. the only reason that Kevin thought that was funny is because he's jet lagged. Um, <laughs> So at least I laughed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. God. So the so yes, there's a breach. It's got a bunch of information. That's not the worst part of it. The worst part of this scenario is that Panera was informed of this data leak in August of last year. 
Oh, come on. And the person who actually informed them of it started looking. Every month, he would go in and check. Have they fixed it yet? Have they fixed it yet? Have they fixed it yet? Obviously, the answer is no. Then he went to Krebs on security, said, hey, this and this is the case. Krebs, Brian Krebs got in touch with Panera Bread, and within like half an hour, all of a sudden, the, the data was removed from the publicly visible place. Um, portions of the website were down, etc. cetera. Um, Panera has since apparently released a, uh, a statement that said, eh, it was only 10,000 customer records that were exposed, except that the people who grabbed the data uh, were able to account for something like between 7 million and 37 million. So Panera, they clearly they did, they did a bad job securing the data to begin with. That's almost, not really, but almost excusable in comparison to the fact that they sat on it for six months, that they knew about it, and now they're trying to spin it all with PR. Um, it's very disappointing. And again, when you're looking at um, uh, reports of breaches, and there's going to be another one next week, there always is, these are the kinds of things you want to look for. Are they handling it uh, in a way that is upfront and honest? that they clearly, yep, we screwed up. Here's how we're fixing it. Here's what we did right. Here's what we did wrong. Or are they trying to spin it all with PR? Uh, well, and after they put the site back online, um, Krebs said, no, it's not clean. And so they took the entire site down. And I checked just before we went on the air and it, it was down. Still down? Yeah. 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 So, so that is a very good example of uh, breach handled poorly. And unfortunately, that too is... Uh, a little bit more common than we might like. So kudos well, good to my contrast between the two. Yep. Kudos to my fitness pal for handling things properly. Mm. And, uh, you know, shame on, on Panera for uh, bread. apparently the bread didn't, cabinets. the bread didn't rise to the occasion. Yeah. Yeah. yeah sure enough. <laughs> can, can we mute Kevin remotely? <laughs> Gary can. I could, I'll edit him out. <laughs> <laughs> he, won't, he won't remember that he was on this podcast anyway. I had this weird dream where I was on this podcast. So, so, okay, okay. I'll, I'll take one for the team here. Speaking of things going up, apparently there was something coming down. Randy? Yeah, sure enough. And it, this was big news. The Tiangong One fell out of the sky, and that's uh, translated to the Heavenly Palace space station, which is a, a Chinese effort. And people were kind of up in arms about this, that, you know, are we going to be hurt or injured by chunks of Chinese spacecraft? And first of all, you know, you look at our space station or the International Space Station, and you see a pretty big structure. The Chinese space station that we're talking about is about the size of a school bus that could probably fit into the space shuttle payload bay. We're not talking about something very big here. And one site calculated the odds of being hit by a piece of this as one in one trillion. And as it turned out, it fell into the Pacific. So even if things did, you know, some pieces of it did survive burning up reentry and likely at least something did, it probably just splashed into the ocean. So I was a little disappointed in the scare headlines and, and all this you know, horrible 
things are going to happen and, you know, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. Hmm. No, it was really pretty small event when it really comes down to it. It's just, I remember when I was a, a kid, uh, there was a lot of stuff on TV about Skylab was yeah. going to fall down. And, uh, right. And, and it hit Australia. It's part of it anyway. Did it, I mean, this is, is, this is a really rare thing that stuff that we created is big enough that it could fall and not burn up entirely and potentially land in the ocean or, or hit a guy in the head, right? It's pretty rare. Yeah. Yeah, I think Skylab, I mean, it was just part of it hit Australia. It didn't hurt anybody. but um, And they were able to recover pieces of it. I've seen a piece of it. Of Skylab? Yeah. No, oh, interesting. What I thought was funny were the news reports that made sure to point out that if you find a piece of the space station, leave it alone. Uh, don't, <laughs> because it could be contaminated with hydrazine, which is a rocket fuel. It could be contaminated with who knows what. Um, uh, but apparently there's actually legal precedent that even the pieces, regardless of where they land, they still belong to China. And it's up to them to, uh, uh, to decide whether or not they want it or not and dispose of it properly or you know, just give it to somebody. China can come fix my roof then. <laughs> I, su- I suppose if any, any pieces of, uh, that were aluminum fell in the United States, then somebody would have to pay the import tariff on them anyway. <laughs> <laughs> The the other thing I was disappointed not only was the the scare tactic headlines, but the use of uh, the improper use of an article. <laughs> they kept calling it the Chinese space station. It's a Chinese space station. They have a they replaced it with another one. It's you know they make it seem like the Chinese put up a space station and now it's falling down. It's no, they retired this one a long time ago. A couple of years ago, yeah. And they, they retired they a, a bigger one, a nicer one up there, and they're planning a, a third one. So I thought they, I thought they retired it because they lost control of it. No, they retired it and then they lost control of it. Oh, <laughs> I think they retired okay. it in 2013 or something, maybe 2014. Oh, that's right. And, the, and then, then in, they lost control in 2016. 2016, yeah. they lost communications with it. So they, something went wrong up there uh, without anybody attending to it. And they were no longer able to control its descent. Um, as, as we've done when we've deorbited some things. Um, we've controlled it, you know, you start the last bit of fuel and power or whatever to to place it somewhere um, rather than just letting it fall. And that is now part of the protocol for putting a satellite up is how they're going to deorbit it safely and yeah. not leave it up there to get in the way of anything else, especially if it goes dead, that they want to make sure that you have a pretty good plan in place to deorbit it and dispose of it. Yep. It's like when you buy a computer, you sometimes have to pay the recycling fee for it ahead of time. Right? So you de- do orbit your satellite into Best Buy's front lobby. Or <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, well, what else is in the news this week? Well, uh, in the Apple world, the, the big thing is uh, today uh, there's a rumor that Apple is going to or is working on developing its own chips to uh, basically – go away from Intel for, for the Mac. So, you know, the, the Mac's had a weird history of, of processors. Started out with the 6800 processor in the 80s, and then they transitioned to these power PC processors in the 90s, which was a big thing because everybody had to recompile all their software, and, uh, and it, it's a whole new operating system, you know, built around this power PC processor. And then they went and did it a third time and you know, went to the Intel processors, um, and now they're talking about doing it again. Apple already 
makes their own processors for their iPhones and iPads um, and other devices like the HomePod and Apple TV. Um, their Macs are the, the ones that use Intel processors. And of course, Apple, you know, it makes the products a little more expensive. And one of the biggest problems for Apple has been Intel has been kind of slow in developing the, these processors for what Apple wants for like the next round of Macs. So the, for instance, Apple will design a new MacBook and there'll be rumors about this new MacBook, but it's supposed to use this new Intel chip. And then the Intel chip gets delayed by another month and another month and another month. And it, you know, Apple just has to sit and wait for Intel's schedule to come out with a new machine. So the thought is that Apple really wants to do this, you know, have complete control of their processors mm-hmm. because then they, they don't have to wait. They could, they could really come out with a new Mac when they think they should come out with one, not waiting another six months for, for Intel. To and ultimately, it. it will save them so much money because they're yeah. not paying a retail markup on, on all these chips, which are essential uh, to, to what they're doing. Definitely. And th- now the problem and the fear is that when Apple went to Intel processors, there was a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of software just wouldn't work on the Intel processors. They had to do a little software emulation for a while, for a couple of years to allow older bits of software to work on the Intel processors. And then eventually Apple said that enough's enough. If the software developer hasn't, you know, updated their software by now, then you probably shouldn't be using it. And then they did away with that. And then people were, you know, sad that they couldn't use their old uh, software. I mean, even even I, 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 I t- I'm totally behind Apple saying, screw the developers if they're not going to, you know, update their software after so many years. Um, there's a couple old games that I'd love to play that I just can't play on any modern Mac because it Well, you're supposed to keep an old Mac around. Yeah, keep one around for that. Um, but uh, people are afraid of that. And I think things have changed a lot. I- I've seen a lot of comments um, on the, the, you know, the blog posts for these rumors, like people saying, oh, you know, this means Ado- they're going to have to convince Adobe and Microsoft to rewrite all their Mac software. You don't have to rewrite all your software. Basically, you just recompile it is what you do. And, and Well, it's never that simple. It's never that simple. But it's never the thing is, that if, simple. If it's built on top of the libraries, which... Apple was really good about in, trying to get in, developers to standardize. You know, in theory. Yeah. In theory. But it's definitely not a theory rewrite. Theory has never, ever uh, panned out that way. We've been down that path multiple times. Certainly, you know, Apple's done it, and Microsoft has even tried it a couple of times internally, and it's just never. Well, never consider, consider this, though, Leo. The, the ARM processors in, in iOS are... Certainly different processors than the Intel ones and the Macs. Mm-hmm. If I were to develop some software, just you know, I just make up some software in in Xcode on the Mac for iOS or for the Mac. For the most part, in, you know, putting aside hardware differences like a touchscreen and things like that, for the most part, I can compile that to, to run on a Mac. Absolutely. And if I you, could compile it to run on the ARM processor. If you I don't know have to, going in and you, and you design things in such a way that there are zero uh, CPU dependencies built into your code, right. fantastic. But that's not what we're talking about. You nailed it at the start. It's what about all this legacy software? And it's not trivial right. legacy software, and it's not unimportant legacy software. Uh, that's the big thing. And yeah, they are going to have to comp- convince Microsoft to do something. They are going to have to convince Adobe to do something. If 
So here's the, here's the question that I have for you. Mm-hmm. What's preventing them from creating this new chip and having it be x86 compatible? I would assume it's legal stuff that Intel owns that. But it's something that they've already dealt with with, um, um, who's it? It's not coming to mind. The other CPU manufacturer. Oh, uh, AMD. AMD. Yeah. Right? AMD makes x86 compatible chips. So instead of there being two manufacturers, why couldn't there be a third called Apple? Um, and they might have to pay a, a licensing fee to do that. But And, you know, it might even be worth a premium for them if it allows what Gary was talking about earlier. They get to move faster. They get to move. They get to do more things more quickly on their custom versions of the x86 chips for their hardware. And they just don't make those chips available to anybody else. I suppose. I, I, I get the feeling Apple wants to move away from the Intel architecture to to move on to you know to make a better processor. Yeah, who doesn't? Their but... feeling, and they've acquired <laughs> a lot of talent, a lot of really smart processor developers at you know, small companies and startups around the world have been acquired by Apple, you know, in preparation for this. And it may be that they say, well, you know, we could develop a, a version of an Intel architecture chip, but that would be throwing away all this great, you know, stuff that we've got, including probably a lot of patents, to create a better chip. And you know, we'll have to we'll have to see. I don't I don't think it's going to be as bad as in the past. I think I think it'll be I, I think it'll be a lot better than people expected um, to transition. Uh, I think a lot of stuff has happened in software development, and uh, it, particularly when it comes to the Mac world, to try to get um, development to be better so that a transition like this isn't as painful um, for developers. Uh, so we'll, we'll have to see. And certainly having developers already thinking a lot about multiple platforms like iOS and, uh, and Mac. And remember, a lot of software developers like uh, Adobe in particular are developing for you know, Windows and Mac too at the same time. I'm sure it's Intel processors, at, you know, the base of both. But you know, they've had to develop a lot of s- stuff that will just work no matter where you compile it. So... It's interesting know. because, you know, for example, Office, Microsoft Office is also a good example. It was one of the, the most popular apps for the Mac for many, many years. In fact, I think it was a, the case that Microsoft made more money on every Mac sold than, I don't know, Apple. Yeah, made. yeah. Uh, yeah that's, but the point is, though, that they were actually two parallel versions. Yes, that's and, why I didn't mention Microsoft. I said Adobe. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but if you take the current versions, they have finally merged them. It is yeah, actually, I think they, I, at least they look it's, very it's, similar. My understanding is that they've, they've actually merged uh, back into a single code base. Excellent. That they can target for each platform. But now there's going to be a third platform. They've thrown Office at multiple different third platforms before, and they've all basically been... Uh, failures. I hope you're right. I really hope that it that it does turn out to be, uh, you know, a brand new processor that's actually sane, as compared to uh, the legacy that is the x86. Uh, you know, we've we've anybody that's dealt with that processor, especially at the assembly language level, uh, knows just how how wacky it is. We know why it's that way, and it has to do with the fact that it's fundamentally a 25, 30-year-old architecture. It is time for something new. Sometimes you need to just throw away the cruft and start fresh, and and it hurts. It's a pain. It It is. The question is... And yet, 
Will the market accept it? That's where it, because if, you know, if you give me two, two machines, this one's really neat and fast and brand new, and there's going to be a lot of new cool stuff in the future. Or I've got this machine over here that works with everything I've got today. It's not a hard decision for me to know which one to buy. That's true. Except, and if you want to just, you know, dink around and, and, and word and, and pages, that's fine. And you don't want to do the new augmented reality hologram, you know, thing that this new machine can do fine. You know, old timer. That's, that's well, no, 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 no. It's not just me being a you know, crafty old timer. It's uh, the corporate world. Mm. It's the corporate world. They've got such a invested base of this existing technology uh, where they can and they do develop their own software that they would then also have to migrate to these other platforms. And I can pretty much guarantee you that a large corporation will have said, you know what, we're using PCs. As a matter of fact, we're using PCs from this manufacturer and getting them to then say, well, you know, we're going to change everything under the hood so that it'll work on this other type of processor. This isn't going to happen. The big corporations are going to keep buying the existing CPUs. Yeah, Which I is why Win, uh, Windows 7 survived for so long is corporations didn't want to upgrade. It's why Windows survives for so long because upgrading or moving to other platforms is painful. It's too painful compared to what they've already spent where they're at. I wonder what percentage of the corporate software is really, it's platform autonomous. It just, it, it, um, it's online. I mean, think 20 years ago, 0% of it would have been yes. software online. It would have all been Windows or, you know, whatever. And 10 years ago, maybe a lot of it would have been. And I'm thinking, you know, if I, if I was hired by a corporation to develop some software, it, it would, unless it was something very like, you know, scientific, controlling scientific instruments or robotics or something, it would, you know, you would instantly just go to something, an online, you know, app. Right, you know, right. Like, you know, like data. And that and doesn't, it, doesn't matter if... Uh, you it's know, actually something I think you mentioned last week where if somebody steals your laptop, well, you get a new one, you log into a couple of accounts and you're back up and running. Exactly. Um, and yes, I agree. That definitely makes this... Uh, I'll say it's within the realm of possibilities. I'm just taking that more skeptical position that says, I don't think it's going to be as easy as we want it to be. I don't think it's going to be as easy as we think. I hope it happens. What's the, uh, oh, uh, quick, quick books, right? I'm not a, not a fan myself, but I know that during the last Big Mac transition, it was a big deal. A lot of people said, oh, we use QuickBooks and we can't up, upgrade to the new Macs until they upgrade their software. Um, but now QuickBooks Online is their main product, and it's what they push. Um, and, you know, if you're thinking four or five years in the future, Apple switches to this new processor, um, certainly by then, it won't even be an issue for that software. That was a problem last time because yeah. they'd be like, well, it's all online now. It doesn't really, we don't really care about the processor. We're not developing for a specific uh, computer anymore. It will be interesting. I will grant you that. Cool. So let's uh, let's go back into space. Randy, you had an update about this the SpaceX project. There's no place like space. No place like space. Yeah, that's where so we are. SpaceX has this proposed Starlink broadband thing that's going to bring what they call fiber class broadband to pretty much everywhere in the world that they're allowed to operate. And the amazing thing is it takes 4,425 satellites for its full complement. 
And the news last week was the FCC granted their license to put this thing online. So at least in the U.S., they can do it, and they're planning on having it up and running as early as next year. And they don't have to have all 4,400 satellites up in the air to, to make this work. They can start with, with only, quote-unquote, 800 to 900 of the satellites. But there's a catch in the FCC approval. SpaceX wanted to have some flexibility of how long it would take to launch all 4,400 satellites, and the FCC denied them a waiver they have to do it within six years if they don't then uh, they have to be satisfied with whatever they have up six years from now so you know that might be enough and if they if they miss that deadline and they they get limited then they have to start over with the licensing to you know launch another thousand or whatever they think they need but the FCC did say that, you know, you can apply for this waiver again later. Maybe if you're making good progress, we'll grant it. Wow. But uh, it, it's a big project. And as I was saying earlier, one of the big sticking points here was, do they have a plan for deorbiting all 4,400 satellites should this you know, system go obsolete or whatever? They may not need one. I mean, these things are pretty small, right? I mean... Well, they're, they're pretty small, but they want to make sure that if, if they're not being used, they're not just sitting up there anymore. Is there enough room up there for 4,400 satellites now? Well, we talked about this last week when you were gone, Kevin. The, um, I didn't listen. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I know. You got to catch London. up, dude. Sorry. But they're going to be in a lower orbit than most other satellites. And that's one of the reasons they need so many. OneWeb has a similar thing with 720 satellites. And they've asked for approval to get to a total of 1,980 satellites. And I think they're probably going to be just a little higher so they can see a little bit more land and cover more space per satellite. So it's interesting that all these different competing things, and there's like three or four of these that are viable and look like they're going to press ahead. I'm not, not sure if they can all, all four of them really make money if they are all competing with each other, but you know, that's the American way. Yeah. It only takes one to win. I, the only thing that concerns me about the SpaceX is the, uh, the fact that we're operating on Elon time. Um, he's been known to be somewhat uh, over-optimistic with respect to his deadlines. So I'm hoping that he can get it. Yeah, that's for sure. Get it uh, up and in place by the time that uh, the FCC puts a deadline on it. Good on the FCC, actually, for throwing that deadline on there. Um, it's, I think it's, it's good incentive to make this happen. Uh, it'll, you know, naturally, if, if the thing has a shred of hope when that deadline comes up, you can pretty much guarantee that they'll say, well, okay, we'll let you do it. We'll give but, you another six months or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I, I love the competition. I love the thought that this, that this might get more of the internet to more places where it's, it's so difficult for some people to get. Yeah, the best I can get is um, 15 down and I think seven up right now, which, you know, is good for most things. But every once in a while, my audio drops out while we're recording this podcast, for instance. Right. Yeah. I think one of the most interesting things to me about the whole SpaceX project is Musk has said that he uh, he wants to use the revenue from it to fund the Mars missions. Yeah. So that's fascinating that you could say, hey, instead of paying, you know, this amount of money to my local telephone monopoly 
to for internet. I could pay less to SpaceX, get faster bandwidth, and they're and help support. And, yeah, yeah, roll it into the, the what I where I think, uh, you know, we should be spending money. Yeah, I think it's it's a, a win win, and it's going to be really interesting to see if other countries jump on board and want this because you know some countries don't want a free and open internet. They don't want their citizens having broadband and learning about the world. So, you know. That is one of the big problems that I think they're going to have to face or address somehow is I don't know how you control where this internet becomes available or more correctly, be, make sure it's unavailable when it's flying over well, some countries. Why should they care? I mean, you, I think they, they just have to care enough to say, look, we won't, we won't sell a subscription to our service to anybody with an address in North Korea. <laughs> and, and we're done. That's it. And if somebody wants to lie and, and have a P.O. box in, in you know, some other country, South, South Korea, South Korea and, <laughs> and actually be in North Korea, or, you know, you know then it's, it's, not, it's not SpaceX's problem. I, I get that. I really do. Um, I'm just not sure that the leadership in North Korea would agree with you. Um, I would assume that. Well, I mean, basically what you're saying is it's against the terms of service, therefore it's not our problem. Who, yeah. who, who cares what North Korea or whoever yeah. thinks? North exactly. Korea does, right? They care. Their, their leadership. But this is an American company making I, an American product. And I understand. But as we've seen over the last few months, North Korea can cause some trouble. They can at least make us worry a lot. Mm. Well, <clears throat> will they go to that level because of this? I don't know. That's part of the unpredictability of the situation. Anybody? I just think that there, the, this is one of those issues that I think is going to have to get addressed a little bit more clearly uh, before, uh, you know, before everybody's really happy with it. Yeah, I think they could just tell, hey, North Korea, if you've got, if you think there's somebody that's in North Korea using our service against our terms of service, then tell us. We'll close the account. You know, we'll confirm that they are, and we'll close the account. Just, you know, tell us as it comes up. But other than that, and I, I think they're going to have the technology to say when we're flying over North Korea or China, that you know it doesn't work, it doesn't uh, respond. I know, but I think it'd be really easy to do, quite frankly, if they designed that in from the beginning, and they probably will design that in. (laughs) You know, I think they should not not put that in. Say, yeah, it's impossible to do that. We'll do the other thing, and um, you know, just to appease them. And but people really want to do it can do it. I mean, so right now, if you have a, a, a ham radio in North Korea, you could talk to anybody, right? as long as you're not caught. Right. So, and you know, certainly reporters take along the, their little briefcase satellite terminal and use Inmarsat or whatever to file their reports. That's yeah. pretty typical. So I think if they this do work enough, too? If, mm. if they do enough. I mean, it's the way it, in China now with the censorship in China, right? If you if for a long time all you need to do was use a VPN and you know, and people that went Americans that would go over to China would Sign up for a VPN service. You go to China, you log into your VPN, so you didn't have to worry about the restrictions. And and anybody in China that really wanted to see the rest of the internet, could, you know, they could in China they could see most of the internet, but some of it censored. They could they could use a VPN, but they've cracked down on that a little bit, so it's a little harder. But it's still possible to get around it. Just you just can't just a simple VPN. I don't think works anymore. The world is 
getting smaller, the world is getting better connected and companies or uh, governments, governments, thank you, can fight against that all they want, but it's going to be a losing battle ultimately. Yeah. Yep, I agree. And that's why Russia was able to disrupt our election. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of things being disrupted, Randy, (laughs) you had some problems uh, on your your computer. Well, you know, we were talking about Microsoft software and and all this stuff. I um, recently got Microsoft Office 365. And all this is, you know, you... You download it all. I mean, you basically don't get a disk anymore. You sign up, you download this little installer, and then it goes out and gets the pieces it needs, depending on what kind of computer you have. And one of the things that they really insist on is that you have a Microsoft account. And I was like, I don't really want to have multiple accounts. What do I have that's Microsoft already? And I realized I've got uh, Skype. And that's one of their accounts because they bought out Skype. Well, I signed up for Skype long before Microsoft owned it. And so they didn't even have an email address associated with my Skype account. So doing all this jumping through hoops to get this account to to um, accept my address and then Skype stopped working and, you know, I got Office going and then this didn't work and the other thing didn't work. It was really frustrating. And even though I'm kind of techie, I can't imagine somebody else that doesn't really have a lot of tech chops dealing with this stuff. So it's not as easy as they seem to think it is. Actually, for a lot of people, it was. Um, the The issue you nailed correctly. I mean, you know, it, full disclosure, Randy and I worked through this issue together when we were in the same place a couple of weeks ago, the same time we did the podcast with the right. four of us. Um, and the issue, of course, as you said, was the fact that you had a very old Skype account. Uh, Skype was purchased by Microsoft. And at that time, at the time of that purchase, the, uh, the account uh, structure was a simple username and password type approach. No email address was necessarily associated with the account. What Microsoft did, uh, gosh, a couple of years ago now, not long after uh, uh, the purchase is they actually which was in 2011 by the way which they actually ended up um, allowing you to merge your existing Microsoft account which in those days were mostly hotmail accounts uh, with your Skype account so you would then have a Skype account that has both the Skype name the old Skype name and the new email address associated with your Microsoft account um, most People who use Skype got reminded of that, got bugged by that enough that uh, they went through the process because they had a Hotmail account or they had a Microsoft account of some sort that they that they felt fine associated mm. with it. And I remember and, that, but I didn't have one and I didn't care. Exactly. You didn't care. You shouldn't have had to at that time, so you just kept on going. Um, but since you wanted to not create yet another account, then yeah, it came time for you to go through that process from way back when that uh, associated an email address with your Skype account. Now, 
the difference, the thing that changed is that for the longest time, you could log into Skype with either your original Skype ID or your email address or your Microsoft account. And that apparently has changed. Uh, they've presumably believed that if you've got both, you really just want the one. You really just want your Microsoft account, and they're pushing people in that direction. And that's where things really got hung up, is that we ended up um, you know, getting you a Microsoft account, an email address, uh, associating that with your Skype account. But then, as you pointed out, your old Skype login didn't work anymore. Uh, but then it was literally as simple as logging into Skype with your Microsoft account, and everything was still there. You'll notice that all of your contacts were still there and all of your history was still there, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I I think I also had to reinstall Skype. I think I had an older version. That's right. You did uh, have an older version that didn't understand the difference between these two. Uh, So you you actually were, um, how can I put this gently, not following best practices uh, by keeping your software as up to date as possible. Well, in Skype, you know, in my defense, Skype usually says, hey, there's a new version, install it now. And I usually did that, and I have not had that for me you know, recently. Usually. For me, it's so usually. I'm it was sorry. kind of surprising that I needed a new version of Skype, but it didn't tell me that. And it was a significant update. I mean, there was a, a there was a large distance between the version you had and the current version. Right, Kevin, you're saying something? I was just going to say, for me, Skype is usually like, uh, "There's an update. You're going to install now," with an exclamation point, not a question mark. And I'm just like, "But I was about to record a podcast." It's like, "Nope, nope, nope. Here we go." Yeah, yeah. In fact, that is one of the changes I'm sure that Randy will someday experience because he, the older version that he had, if it was going to notify you of an update, uh, it was going to say, "You know, do you want it? Yes or no?" And as you point out, Microsoft is definitely moving towards this more insistent model where. Uh, you have uh, all the choices you want as long as the choice is yes, do it now. Right. Any color but, you want as long as it's black. Exactly. I, I have a genuine, this sounds like a trolley question, uh, Randy, and I don't mean it that way. It's it's genuinely okay. my question. Do you really, does anybody really need Microsoft Office anymore? There's there's <laughs> Google Docs, there's LibreOffice, there's there's OpenOffice. There, there's many alternatives that don't lock you into to Big Redmond. Well, and as a matter of fact, I very rarely use it, but I do have a few spreadsheets that I want to deal with. But the main reason is that I'm a member of a couple of boards and they usually circulate documents in Word format that they want you to you know, use markup and uh, to get the, your comments back to them. So, you know, I, I was mostly being uh, a team player on that. I don't actually use Word for my writing. I use WordPerfect. And still yeah. love it. And uh, I think you were also um, in need of PowerPoint for, uh, for helping your wife with some stuff. Right. And Unfortunately, it's interesting. One of the, the, um, um, uh, the objections to still needing office is that um, the alternatives that, that Kevin mentioned, uh, OpenOffice, LibreOffice, even Google Docs, and a couple of others, um, they all read and write Microsoft Word format. Uh, so in theory, you could still exchange documents with other people that are using Microsoft Office without needing Microsoft Office yourself. But except, I wasn't sure that the markup, you know, the, the track except, changes thing would work and things ex- like that. Except, uh, I think depending on which of the alternatives you have, track changes may or may not be there. What's more annoying for the people who are using Office is that all of these third parties, they mess up the formatting. 
if you want something to look a certain way, if you want a document to retain a certain layout or certain margins or certain page, I mean, basically anything you can think of that has, has to do with the look of the document, the look of the result, uh, one of the best ways to screw it up is to take it to, a, to one of these alternative apps and then expect to bring it back to a Microsoft Office app. It just doesn't handle that scenario safely. If and, you're looking- and quite frankly, Office is pretty cheap. I mean, for 99 bucks a year, yes, you have to pay for it yearly now, yeah. you get five installs. And, and they don't say five of your own computers. I could share one with my wife. I could share one with a buddy. Right. And we each get, you know, a terabyte of OneDrive. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty good deal. It's and a pretty fact, good deal. It's five installs and it's five installs cross-platform. As you know, I run both Mac and PC. And some of those have Microsoft Office for the Mac. Some of those have Microsoft Office for the PC. And it all counts against the same five, uh, five that I get with my initial uh, 365 subscription. So, yeah. There's a, there's a lot of good, there's a lot of bad, but um, in your case, you know, going back to Skype, Skype is one of those things that, um, uh, you know, yeah, you wanted to keep it up to date. And if it wasn't telling you about it, well, okay, bad on it, but still, we needed to get you updated. By the way, uh, one uh, thing that is actually coming out in an Ask Leo tip of the day, I think ne- this week or next, and that is... Um, uh, for the longest time, one of the things that Microsoft was trying to do with Skype was to force you to use the, the the modern app, the tiled app, the whatever you want to call it in Windows 10. And so, so much so that they actually removed the standard Windows client from download. So you couldn't get it, even if you were running Windows 7, which if I remember right, Randy, you are. Yeah, As, I'm still on 7 Pro. Yep. As you saw, we were able to get it. And that's because Microsoft was uh, finally relented and they made the download of what they now call Skype Classic available for Windows. And that includes Windows 7, but also you can install the same version of Skype Classic on Windows 10, which I think a lot of people will appreciate because the, the, the version that comes with Windows 10 it's a little bit more hamstrung. It certainly is a little different than what you might be used to. Um, and it's just nice to be able to get the old app back. Well, you showed people they should listen to the end of the podcast because there could be some good tips. There's a tidbit right there. Yep. Yep. Speaking so of the end of the podcast, up. yeah, <laughs> I think we're done. Yeah. Do we need to talk about projects or books and things like that? Oh. I think we're at the end of the hour. We could hold that for next week. Yeah. All right. Sounds okay. good. So yeah, what we do fine. next week will be next week's what we did last week. Exactly. There we go. He <laughs> said it best. So now we've got something for people to come back for. Yeah. Very good. <laughs> well, the show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh18. You can also sign up on the website for email updates that will let you know when there's a new episode posted or just subscribe with a podcast app. We're also on Twitter at The TEH Podcast and on Facebook at facebook.com slash The TEH Podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again here next Tuesday. Bye. Bye. Bye.